right? How's everyone doing today? Good. We've got a small buzz again this weekend. It's what happens when Brent isn't here and I'm, I'm in charge of turning things on. Um, if you, if you uh, help run sound, that's funnier because you know that Brent's a wizard and I'm not. Um, well, hey, good morning, church. How's everyone doing today? Good, good. If you don't know me, uh, my name is Brian. I'm the, the volunteer worship director here at Christ the King, and I also come here with my, my lovely wife, Jessie, and our blended family of four kids, um, and uh, they're pretty great. Um, but in a, a addition to church and family, um, like a lot of you here, I, I, um, I don't just get to play music and hang out with my kids all day. I, I have a nine-to-five job. Does anyone else here have a nine-to-five job or has had or will have someday? Everybody's hands went up. That was good. Kyle, you will have to have a job someday. Yeah, your mom agrees. Sorry, bud. Um, and uh, for the last uh, last 12 years, I've been, I've been working in, in sales. I work in sales. So if you don't know that about me, I work in sales. Some of you are like, oh, man, I think differently about Brian now. That's okay. That's cool. I've been in sales long enough to know, you know, we're not always the most loved um, bunch of people um, in the world. And, and I'm sure you, you might have some recent sales trauma. Maybe you were out at 11 p.m. this last for, uh, Thursday night getting ready to hit up Best Buy, and, and you knew exactly what you wanted, and some doofus sales kid thought that you needed help. Oh, my gosh. How dare they? How dare they ask you, how can I assist y'all? I know where the TVs are, <laughs> mister. Um, but do you know where the bathroom is, though? Um, so uh, sales for me started in, in a similar spot. I worked in, uh, I worked in the mall. I, I worked at a clothing store. Um, and, and I worked what felt like a, a million Black Friday shifts. And, uh, but, but I loved it. I, I did my job well. I'm sure sometimes I was too assertive and someone came home and was like that annoying sales guy. But, but uh, I, I, I enjoyed sales. And eventually I, I, I was supposedly a good salesperson and that helped me convince some other people that they should hire me for a different sales job um, selling computer software. And, uh, and, and one thing that, that I, I really started to learn when I started working in software, I worked for a Bible software company called Logos. I sold Logos Bible software. Um, and, and one thing that I, I started to, to realize really quickly that I, I suspected working in retail, but then I learned was a fact when I started selling things that cost thousands of dollars, um, is um, we don't know what we want as consumers. We think we know, and we want to know, but we don't always know. And, and bear with me when, when, when I explain this. Some of you are offended now. You're like, Brian, I know what I wanted the other day, and I got it at a discount. But, but, but the truth was is, is what would happen is all the time people would call in, and they'd say, Brian, I, I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm a pastor from Illinois, and, and I know that I really need uh, Bible software that will help me preach. It will help me do these things. Um, and I would say, oh, oh, my goodness. Yes. Well, here we go. I've got this option, and here's what it is. And, and what, what ended up happening a lot of the times in these conversations, and I learned really quickly, is um, I would start spewing out information about our product because I thought that's what people needed, and that wasn't what people needed. And I learned the hard way for years and years and years that, that in order to be a good salesperson, I actually had to help the customer identify and understand more what they wanted. 
So when I said earlier, like, ah, as consumers, we don't always know what we want. We know what we want in terms of, yes, I want my house to be warm. Yes, I want to be, I want to be entertained. I, I want a TV that's going to go on the wall nicely. It's going to be great for the Super Bowl party. But there's a disconnect between my wants and, and, and the product and how it's provided. And that's why salespeople exist. I know you're like, Brian, like, we got a lot of holiday shopping to do. I don't need you pitching me on salespeople. This is not a pitch for why salespeople are great. This is just, don't worry, it'll tie into the sermon. Um, I promise. Okay, and what I learned is, is, is if I wanted to be good at sales, I needed to do a good job of figuring out what someone wanted and help them understand how it, that can be accomplished. How, how I can say, okay, hey, so you need to uh, be able to uh, get a good exegetical commentary and you really care about contemporary academics and a bunch of other big words. Okay, what does that mean with the product? And then I would, I would make this association with that. And so then the customer was able to come with their understanding of what they needed, and I was able to provide a product. Now, I don't work at Logos Bible Software anymore. Um, I now work for a, a new, much more exciting company, um, a product that you've probably heard of. It's called DIS. And we sell accounting software and other programs that heavy equipment dealerships utilize in order to run their business. <laughs> Nobody uses DIS? Oh, man. Okay. But it's it, what, 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 now I'm selling to an, an organization. And the same thing is true when the organization comes in and say, hey, we need all these things, and, and here's what we want done. And, and I have to say, well, okay, well, here's how the product does it. Here's actually a different way to think about this. And what happens is, as a salesperson, I learned that there were two things. One, I need to understand what they need, and I need to be able to communicate in a way that they can recognize how the product is what they want. It actually deals with the thing that they care about, okay? And I think that we can all agree that that's what we want. When we, when we go to buy something on Black Friday, when we go to buy a gift for a family member, when we go to, to buy new clothes, new food, a new house, whatever it is, there's something that we know that we want to accomplish. I need nourishment for my body. I want a place for my family to grow up and, and, and to know. And, and there's someone on the other end who is, is doing some sort of communication. Maybe it's not a salesperson. Maybe it's a, a real estate agent or maybe it's a marketing team. But what they're trying to do is say, hey, our product is the one that will take care of your needs. Okay? And in the midst of all that, there's people who are honest, there's people who are dishonest, there's people who miscommunicate and do a terrible job, and there are horrible salespeople, and there's people who do a good job. And, but, but the point is, is, is we actually care about what we're getting. We actually have a reason that we want to, to purchase it, reason that we want to, to acquire it, but, but also a reason that we want to invest in it and trust it, right? When you buy a new car, you make that buying decision, but every time you get in your car and you drive that car, you trust it, right? You trust that the salesperson got you a car that's going to get you to work. A car that if something bad happens, you'll be able to turn out of the way. That the house that you bought is actually going to have a furnace that works in the winter and you'll be able to stay warm. That the sweater you got won't shrink as much as you worry it will and it'll still fit you when you have to go to grandma's dinner leading up to Christmas. There's, there's, there's a, a, a why behind all of these things. Why, why do I need this? Why does it matter? And, and I want someone to communicate to me so I can feel confident and I can understand that. Because the second piece is that if I want to use my car well, I need to understand how to drive it. If I want to wash that sweater well, I need to know how to wash it correctly so it doesn't shrink. And as Christmas time comes up, I think that there's, there's a little bit um, of the same thing with the nativity and with the birth of Jesus. Right? Jesus is, is uh, he's the reason for the season, right? Has anyone ever heard that term? It's the reason for the season. Um, 
But, 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 but why? Why is, why is Jesus the reason for this season? Why should I be so invested in that? Sure, we've got the, the nativity scene set up and, and the star at the top of the tree and the Christmas songs, but in the midst of all that, there's a part of me that's like, well, why, why Jesus? For people who, who, who maybe don't come to church regularly, maybe they're not a Christian, they're probably really asking, like, why Jesus? Maybe you're one of those people. Maybe you're like, Brian, like, yeah, that's actually why I'm here this Sunday. I'm like, why is Jesus the reason for the season? What's all the hoopla? And, and there has to be more to Jesus than just being a cute little baby in a manger, right? There has to be a reason that when we sing songs like Joy to the World or, or we declare glory to the newborn king, this Jesus has got to be a lot more than just like a cute Christmas tradition. Because this life, this world, there are problems. It's not all Christmas lights. It's not all holiday ham. It's not all snowflakes and hanging out with our families. There are a lot of problems in this world, and there are too many problems for a holiday season to just paint over it once a year. For, for a fluffy Jesus to just be like, Jesus is the reason for the season. Good luck January through November. We'll see you next year, and Jesus will be back to make you feel better once again. No, we, we, we need more than that Jesus. Just the same as we need more than just a Sunday Jesus. So for this year's Christmas series, which we're starting today, I know we didn't play any Christmas songs. I apologize, but uh, we didn't want to surprise you too bad. Um, but we're going to be talking about, spoiler alert, the birth of Jesus, okay? But this year, it's going to be it's going to be a little bit different because it, we we, we want to make sure one that we're talking about the birth of Jesus that we're they're helping you understand the reason for the season. But this year, um, instead of preaching through the New Testament accounts, we're actually going to tell the Christmas story um, through God's plan of redemption in the lens of the Old Testament. Old Testament um, is the books of the Bible that were written before Jesus was born, and we're going to see how in those books. In that history, those people, their story is actually a story that is marching towards the coming of Jesus. That Jesus was such a reason for everything that they were doing in their world that everything pointed towards him. The need for a savior, the need for, for a big Jesus who isn't just a fun little Christmas-themed Jesus is, is, is truly what we need and what they needed back then. And I want you to know, guys, I love Christmas. I'm not... I'm not I'm not trying to rag here on your nativity scene that you set up at your house this last weekend. Um, I have one at my house as well. I'm putting up Christmas lights. Um, but, but we know that, that we need a Jesus that is real and a Jesus that makes a change in our life. And you see, God planned, as the series is appropriately named, the coming of Christ. And just like today, the people in the Old Testament needed that Savior. But before we go and we look at the plan that God had for redemption— we're going to see some really cool, I've seen a little bit of some of what Tyler's going to be talking about next month, and I'm really excited about it. But before we jump into to some of the, the prophecy and, and some of the things that are really pointing towards Christ, um, we're going to actually start in the first book of the Bible. We're going to start in Genesis. And we're going to understand why Jesus had to come. Why, why, did, why do we need Jesus? So the first book of the Bible, Genesis, the, the very first words in Scripture, we see God outside of time and space, and he takes absolutely nothing, and he creates everything in the universe, right? Genesis Genesis 1, 1, and going through that whole chapter, he creates the stars, he creates the sky, he separates the water from the land, the plants, and the animals, and he makes this amazing world. And, and at the end of that first chapter, it says, God saw all that he made, and it was very good indeed. 
Okay, God saw all that he made, and it was very good indeed. In the second chapter of Genesis, we're introduced to the Garden of Eden, a perfect paradise, and God places Adam, the first man in this garden, to live and to tend to it. Soon after, he provides Adam with a wife, and as God tells us, it is not good for man to be alone. Here in this time and place, we see a perfect relationship between God and man. We see a perfect relationship between a husband and a wife. Add to that a perfect relationship that, that, that this husband and wife have with the animals and with the plants and with the land. There are no bad things. There's no death. There's no war or shame. There's no abuse. There's no cruelty. A place where Adam and Eve received everything they needed to live life to the fullest. It was paradise. And it was the kind of world that, 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 that we were meant to live in. The kind of world that our hearts long for. But then we arrive to chapter 3. And we're going to read, we're going to read chapter 3 here, and we're going to kind of break it into two parts today, um, but, but we're going to go through the whole thing here now. So if you've got your Bibles with you, open up to Genesis 3. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees of the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So the Lord called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that, commanded you, that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are more cursed than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains, and you will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust. And you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, we must not re he must not reach out and take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim. Cherubim is, is a kind of an angelic figure. Um, and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. So that perfect world, 
the beautiful paradise, it's gone. It's lost. No longer will man dwell in such a place. Everlasting life, it, it's just gone. And in its place is death. A world that is in a state of chaos as a result of being separated from God and the curse. That is death. Now, in the first seven verses, it, it tells us how, how sin entered the world and, and the conversations that took place. And, and we're going to come back to that. We're going to actually start in kind of the second two-thirds of the, the passage. But we're going we're to come back to the first few. But in verses 8 through 24, Adam and Eve's new reality is one that is infected with sin and death. The Garden of Eden sounds like some place we would only dream of before this event. The kind of place that we're like, that sounds amazing. Someday I hope to own 10 acres out in Acme and it will be like an amazing little Garden of Eden, right? But the, the crazier part is that the, 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 the new reality for Adam and Eve actually just sounds a lot like where we live today. Eden is gone, sin and death have entered the world, paradise is lost, the stuff that's new to Adam and Eve is all too familiar to us because the reality is that is where we live. The feeling of shame that prompts them to hide are feelings that we understand. Labor pains and, and childbirth are ones that many of you have experienced. The ongoing struggle of disruption and tension in the marriage relationship the painful work required to provide for our needs from a world that produces thorns and hindrances for us. And that through these cycles of pain and, and, and hard labor, the only thing that is inevitable is that we will someday die. No matter how hard we work, it will all fall apart. The new reality for Adam and Eve is the only reality that we have really known. And not just the physical world is broken, the spiritual world is broken too. There's, there's sin that has entered there. Because there's much more to this world than just what we see and, and what we can physically feel and, and scientifically explain. I think we've all heard the term, um, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Um, I think that little term is the ultimate proof that, that there's more, more to life than, than just our bodies. There is so much more hurt than just what's physical. And there's so much more wrong that can be done. There's greed, there's envy, lust, quarrels, deceit, gossip, arrogance, trauma, emotional and mental abuse, betrayal, heartbreak, exploitation of people. The souls of this world are crying out of pain even more than our physical selves. Now, the other important thing that we need to know, and I, I know you're thinking, Brian, you said this was a Christmas sermon. We're, we're getting real, real serious here. Um, but, but, but my hope here is, is we're going to see how this, this passage sets up the need for Christ. Okay, so stick with me, all right? The other important thing that we need to know in order to understand this passage and understand a lot of what, what Scripture says um, is not only are we in a broken world, not only are we in need of a Savior, but we are all descendants of Adam. Adam is our great, 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 great grandpappy. And as descendants of Adam, that means that we are all infected with that sin. We're all born sinners. We're all born separated from God and his glory. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. We are a people in need of saving. Not saving like a, a damsel in distress that's been kidnapped and she's in the tower and where's my knight in shining armor? 
my horrible stepmother has placed me here. Um, no, we, we're, we're, we're more like a, like a prisoner on death row. We've been found guilty, and eventually we're going to have to pay the price for our crimes, right? But what is amazing is that while we were still sinners, while we were still guilty, while we were still rightfully charged with death, God sent his son to save us. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says, one world broke into another world through the womb of a teenage Jewish girl. God, being outside of time and space, broke through into our world to make the ultimate sacrifice to save us. That Jesus, while fully God, became fully man, born of human flesh. And why this? Why is this good news in contrast to the chaos and pain of this world? Because God became just like me and you. And all, even though his world is apart from our world, he, he, he came into our world as a man so that he could take our place in that, that death row sentence. So that he could take our place. Jesus became human so that he could pay the price that only a human could. And he said, I will pay the cost of sin. Romans 5 also tells us, but God proved his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died in our place. And not only did he die, but he conquered death, and he rose from the grave. As, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, for since death came through a man, Adam, right? Death came through our, our great-great-great-grandpappy, Adam. Don't be too mad at him, okay? He's, he's, he's your great-great-great-grandpappy, okay? Before death came through him, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Friends, we celebrate Christmas because the birth of Jesus is a reminder of what God becoming human means for us. He did not become human because it was cool, because it was like, oh, I'm just going to come and, and do some miracles. Yes, like that was, that was part of it, but he wasn't just there to fix a couple things in that day. He came to earth because we needed a Lord and Savior. We needed to be saved and freed from sin. And Jesus said, yes. We celebrate Christmas because he came and he saved us and he freed us from sin and he made us alive in him. And that someday we would go and be with him in heaven. This is the meaning of Christmas. If we look at the, it's such a well-known verse in John three sixteen, it says, for God loved the world in this way. You might know it as for God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That happens because he came to earth. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Friends, we celebrate Christmas because Jesus came and he brought life. And he, he was only able to bring life for us because he came as a human. He came as a baby. The hope of Christmas, then, is that we can also trust God. We can trust that our God says what he does, what he says he will. As we'll see this, these coming weeks, he's going to say a lot of things in the Old Testament, and Jesus is his doing of what he has said. His speaking is his doing, and we're going to see that, that we can trust him because what he says he will do for us is true. So the question, then, that I have today is, how, how do we sometimes end up with just sort of a fluffy Christmas Jesus? 
And maybe that's maybe maybe a better word is is kind of the dashboard Jesus. So we've all probably seen the little dashboard Jesus, and he sits there and he wobbles and he's got a big smile on his face. Um, the, the, the point is, is that, that, that somehow, even with this amazing reality, Christ coming to earth right in front of us, how come, I, I know for me, how come sometimes I forget about that? How come sometimes when I'm having a bad day, I, I'm not able to remember that Jesus came and died for me and that, that whatever sin I've done, whatever is going on, that someday I'll be relieved of that pain? Is there something that is, that is working to sub, subvert our faith in Jesus? Something that is actively working contrary to our trust in him. And, 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 and friends, the answer is yes. There is something out to deceive and distract us. Striving that we might think less about the truth of the gospel and more about anything else. Because if we look at this passage, even in, even in this first passage in the fall, uh, there, there, there's the verse where it, it talks about how the offspring of, of Eve will, will strike the serpent's head and how the serpent will only strike his heel, which points towards Christ and, and him coming and defeating death. It's right there, yet somehow we still too often can live life like, oh man, well, I just got to keep going. I just got to gotta push through. And then that next day we're like, how, how did I forget about Jesus? But the truth is that there, there is something working to break our trust in God. And that's same thing as what led to the first act of sin. There was deception that led to the giving into temptation and eating the forbidden fruit. And it was a result of trusting in something other than God. What we're going to see is that Adam and Eve, even if just for a brief moment, doubted what God had said. So if we go back to the beginning of Genesis, it says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Did God really say? That's how the serpent starts. It says, did God really say? And now before I go on, I want to make it clear. This lack, of, this lack of trust in this moment, this doubt, that was not the first sin, okay? The first sin was when Adam and Eve ate from the tree that God told them not to. The sin was, was when they chose to disobey God, okay? Because doubt is not sin, okay? I don't want you to sit here and read that and be like, Brian, I got, I got doubts they happen. I got moments where I'm like, God, what is going on? But the thing is, is we would be foolish to think that Satan wouldn't use our doubts or our confusion or our questions to try and lead us away from God and into sin. In this passage, the serpent begins with, did God really say? And then what does he say? Did God really say you can't eat from the, the tree in the garden? The serpent is sneakily coming at Eve with the appearance of wanting to have a sincere discussion about what God said. But what he does instead is he corrupts a call to obedience. Right? God has called Adam and Eve to, hey, obey, be obedient. And he's like, well, do we really need, does he really need you to be obedient? He alters Eve's perspective by emphasizing God's prohibition rather than his provision. 
He minimizes God's command to a question. Did he really say? He creates doubt around God's sincerity in the command about fruit and pretends as if God was not being honest about the consequences. As Bruce Walkie puts it, the serpent's subtle changes to God's word entirely distorts the truth. He wants God's word to appear harsh and restrictive. I'm sure I'm not the only one who is who 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 sometimes is like, man, I, I sometimes just feel like God's just harsh and restrictive. The serpent is trying to trick them into thinking that God is holding something back from the man and woman, that God is denying them some sort of delight and his word can't be trusted. For Adam, the doubt that leads to a willingness to disobey is, in my opinion, even more embarrassing. <laughs> Not only was Adam the one who received the initial instruction directly from God, which if you look, it, it's kind of interesting that God, he talks to the serpent, he talks to Eve, and then later he says, hey, didn't I tell you not to eat from the tree, dude? Okay, so Adam, Adam had received that initial instruction, and, and, and for all we know, maybe Adam is the one who told Eve about it. So Adam, having heard the initial instruction of do not eat from this tree, what happens? Adam's just like, hmm. My wife thinks I should try this fruit. I know I'm not supposed to, but sure, I'll try it. Like, come on. He like, he didn't even need any convincing. He just needed to see, oh, sure, yeah, let's go for it. And what, the thing, though, is what Adam and Eve are implicitly saying when they take the fruit and eat is they're saying that what God has given me here in paradise is no longer enough. See, the Garden of Eden and all that it provided was still lacking something. That's what, that's what they're saying. Even though it didn't lack anything, by them saying, oh, I want a little bit more, even though I was told not to, they're saying that, yeah, everything that I had over here in the Garden isn't enough. I want something else. See, the powers that work against God don't need to come out and say, like, God's bad. Don't trust him. In order for us to be like, oh, shoot, maybe I shouldn't. No, Satan, Satan works a lot more sneakily than that. He just will, will, will feed the questions, or he'll just take the questions that you're thinking and just be like, yeah, what about this way over here? The serpent wants us to forget about God's provision, and he wants to think about God's prohibition apart from it. The serpent wants us to lose trust in God, and he will have no shortage of questions and arguments or manipulation of our own questions in order to do it. Maybe, maybe it's the, what if I just had more money? <clears throat> Another drink won't hurt, will it? What if God doesn't fix my kid or my spouse? Could a loving God really? If I say this, this is the last time, it'll be okay. This will be the last time. Is it really safe to let those people in when I'm hurt? Did God really hear my prayer? Does prayer do anything? I'm not saying that these are, are, are bad questions, right? The, the question and the doubt is not the sin, but, but we need to see that those questions, Satan can and will strive to use those. And, and if we look, the, the instruction for Adam and Eve of... of uh, do not eat from the tree, right? When he said that to Adam, God spoke. So that's God's word, okay? And so the first deception was actually related to God's word. It was, it was the serpent saying, does God's word really say that? It was trying to, to, to turn God's word against us. And, and, and maybe for you, scripture itself is some of the place where those tough questions are. 
Do I really need to read the Bible in order to be close to God? Will God really bring me closer to him, or will I just have to follow a bunch of rules? What about the passages that hurt? What about the ones that were like, oh my gosh, I hope my new believer friend doesn't read that one, because I don't want to talk about it. What about the ones that maybe make us question the goodness of God or question our value in his eyes? I'll make a bold assumption. I'll assume that, that some of the ladies in this room know all too well what it's like to read a passage and, and feel hurt. Genesis 3, for, for some of you, might even be one of them. Satan wants you to see God's restrictions, doubt his sincerity, and doubt other things he has said in his word. But the truth is that in Genesis 3, if we really look at it, and, and I can't, I'm not going to go too deep into it today because that's not what it's about, um, but I would love and hope for the opportunity someday. But, but, but the truth is that the value in, of Eve and every other woman in history is no less than Adam or any other man. God wants you to know that you are loved and valued in the kingdom of God and are part of his plan and redemptive history. And so when you say, man, that one hurts, God is like, okay, come in closer, please. I have more that I want to show you. But, but, but Satan wants that hurt to swing the pendulum the other way. Again, these kinds of questions, these kinds of this is how I feel moments, they're not bad questions. We just need to know that each question has the opportunity to bring us closer to God or swing the other way and take us further from him. And we must recognize in this that just like Eve was deceived in the garden, each and every one of us will face questions every day that hold the potential to distort your perspective of the word of God. So how does, how does baby Jesus tie into all of this? kind of got really far away from the, the Christmas message, but, but, but uh, there's a reason. What does Christmas have to do with our doubts and temptations? I don't have this in my notes, but I'm, I'm just going gonna, gonna to say it. In the Old Testament, there's the Passover meal, right? There's all these traditions, okay? There's all these things that they go and they, they remember. The, the Passover meal is, is remembering when, when, when the, the, the Spirit passed over the doors of, of the Jewish families who had, who had painted the blood. Um, and so when, when, Moses, when Moses came to Egypt, right before he was going to take all, all of the Israelites out of Egypt, okay, the night before he came through and killed the firstborn of each family, except for those who had marked with the blood. Okay. And what happened was is the Israelites were passed over. And in remembrance of God's mercy to them and his deliverance from, for them from slavery in Egypt into the new world, they, they had this Passover tradition. And that's only one tradition. But the reason that I, I bring this up is because I, I think it emphasizes this point really well. Tradition is, is a way of remembering the things that God has done. And sometimes it might feel like, oh, I've, we've got to do all these things, and there's, there's, there's rules, and, and we'd like to, <laughs> Satan would like for us to see it as a prohibiting and restrictive. But the truth is, is, is Christmas, just like the Israelites remembering the Passover, is a chance for us to remember God's provision. It is, it is a chance for us to remember and to celebrate and have this reminder that sweeps up our entire country and, and so many other countries with Jesus came into the world and he died so that you could live. 
And it is in those remembrances. It is in pressing into to our faith in God. That is how we are best able to respond to and combat the deception that Satan continues today. He wants you to forget. So praise God that there is a tradition, that there is a Sunday church service, that there is a Christmas, that there is an Easter where we are reminded that, oh man, no, Jesus came and Jesus died so that no matter how messed up I've been this last week, no matter what, I am saved because of Christ. So that in that, that moment when we feel like we're believing the lie, when we feel like we're swinging away from God, there will be a reminder. Jesus came so that you may experience life in Christ and declare that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christmas is a chance for us to remember that as, as, he, as Jesus himself said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Even if you die, you will live, for you are in Christ. There is nothing that this world can offer that is greater than Jesus. So my prayer for this Christmas season is that we would be reminded and that we would grow in our trust in Christ, that we would see, you know what, I, I believe that lie, but, but I can be reminded of Jesus, for his mercies are new each day, and that I can just keep going, that there is truth in what God says, that he has provided a book that I can, that I can read no matter how long I've neglected it. There, there are prayers that will be heard, that when I live obediently, that I will actually grow in the knowledge of God, and that most of all, I am alive in Christ because he came into this world. No matter what happens, if you are saved, you are, he, he will lose no one that is in his hand. Friends, there is no greater thing than this. So this Christmas season, no matter what the ways that you have been deceived or that the, the Satan is trying to deceive you, be refreshed and renewed and knowing that each year, each day, I am reminded that Christ came and died for me, and it doesn't matter if I messed up or if I forgot. So friends, let's, let's pray today. God, we thank you. We thank you for sending your son, Lord. We thank you that Jesus came, that he, he fulfilled the prophecies and, and, and everything that was pointing forward in the Old Testament, and that at his birth, Already we were able to say, God speaking is his doing. God always keeps his word. And Lord, through Christ's life, there's so much that happened. And he died and he rose again and he said he will return. And I pray that we would be encouraged this time of year to remember that if God says it, it is true. And Lord, may, may we be strengthened. May we be encouraged in knowing that there will, there will be questions and there will be doubts, but that God has given us things to help us swing the pendulum to him, to bring us closer to him. And Lord, I pray for everyone in this room, but also everyone that we come in contact with, that Christmas would be a time for joy, that we would love Christmas season, that we would love giving gifts, that we would love receiving gifts, that we would love getting together with family and having fellowship, because Lord, all of those things are reminders of you and our relationship with you and what you have done, the gift that you have given and that we have received. 
And God, for anyone that is here today that says, Brian, I haven't received that gift, Lord, I pray that they would not walk out of here quickly today, but that they would stay a minute, that they would linger, that they would talk to Pastor Tyler, that they would maybe just think and pray and, and just say, God, that tough question that I've had, what, what do you have to say about it? I know I've listened to the world, but maybe what do you have to say? Help us to hear your word, Lord. And we praise you, God, and we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.